Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear... We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, this week is all about the ladies. Woohoo! <laughs> From the women designers to the curators, conservators, photographers, and even graphic designers, this week we are super excited to get the inside scoop on the Costume Institute's exhibition, Women Dressing Women, which is now on view at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Yes, and we were so excited to be able to see this exhibition with some of you who joined us on our Fashion History Tour of New York City, and that was this past December. And so excited, of course, that we wanted to share with all of our listeners as well. And this exhibition comes at a very timely moment, actually, because some of you may recall that in late 2023, Sarah Burton stepped away as the head designer for Alexander McQueen, which she had been at the helm since McQueen sadly passed, and Sean McGurr was tapped as her successor. And this sparked a conversation within the fashion industry about how few women designers are currently sitting at the helm of major fashion labels. This, however, was not always the case. If we turn the clock back a little more than 100 years or so, it was very much the opposite. Uh, Women dominated fashion during the 19-teens and the 1920s, and today we're going to hear about a few of those makers, as well as their lineage and impact on the very important women designers who followed. We are so pleased that exhibition curators Melissa Huber and Karen Van Gotzenhoven join us to speak about their exhibition, which you alluded to, April, is not only about women designers, but also the exhibition itself was intentionally produced largely by women. We cannot wait to learn more. So Melissa and Karen, a warm welcome to Dressed. Ladies, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. We're we're big fans, so it's a pleasure to be here. Cass and I are both big fans of both of your work, too. So it's a nice little fangirl circle that we have here happening today. <laughs> so I want to thank you not only for joining us, of course, but also your really, really lovely exhibition and the accompanying catalog. And as it turns out, this exhibition being mounted right now seems to be incredibly timely because there's a lot of discussion currently about the lack of women designers helming the major fashion houses. Um, so fate, as it turns it, kind of delivered us this exhibition at this really perfect moment. And it was delayed a little bit, I understand, by unforeseen circumstances, <laughs> but um First, before we get to the exhibition itself, I was hoping that you both might introduce yourselves and give us a little bit of context for your role at the Costume Institute and then also the genesis of this exhibition. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can go first. I'm Melissa Huber, an associate curator in the Costume Institute, and I focus on our 20th century fashion collection and I'm also the educational liaison for our department. And, and in terms of the the genesis for the exhibition, I've always loved the interwar period. It's a really exciting era in in fashion design for me and happens to be a really important moment in terms of women's involvement in fashion as it's the one time when women slightly outnumber their male counterparts in, in leading the creative direction of fashion. So I've long aspired to organize a show on, on women fashion designers and and it's something that has come up periodically over the years and in, in conversations. And as we were approaching the centennial of women's suffrage in the United States, um, it was an idea that both myself and Karen brought to our curator in charge, Andrew Bolton. So that sort of was the genesis for placing the show on the calendar, which felt like the right time then, though, as you mentioned, I think it's remained an incredibly timely topic, of course. Absolutely. Karen? 
Yes, my name is Karen van Rotzenboren. I am currently based in Antwerp in Belgium, and I'm a curator and PhD candidate at the uh, Ghent University in Belgium. Um, my promoter is Maud Bess-Kruger, who you might be familiar with. I previously was an associate curator at the Costume Institute from 2017 till 2021. And it's when what Melissa talked about. So I'm uh, more specialized in the late 20th century and contemporary uh, women's wear. And I was already tinkering a bit with uh, sort of feminist theory, what I'm also working on in my PhD studies. And in that sense, we thought, uh, since Melissa was working more on the interwar period, that it would be great to bridge those two fields in one show. And a f couple of years <laughs> uh, later, I'm very happy that we were able to. Yes. And, and you know, also, too, one of the things that I found so fascinating about the show is it's not just the women designers who are designing women's wear that kind of came together um, to to create this exhibition at the, at the Costume Institute. But actually, your exhibition catalog points out that by and large, women were largely responsible for the creation of the Costume Institute. So I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about this and also the role of women in the actual mounting of this exhibition. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that not everyone realizes about the Costume Institute is what a unique curatorial department it is within the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the genesis of the department's history actually comes from a, an organization known as the Neighborhood Playhouse, which was founded by Irene Lewison um, and her sister Alice Lewison around 1915 in collaboration with other theater professionals, including Aileen Bernstein and, and Lee Simonson, who were stage designers. And they started to collect this group of garments that included global dress and fashionable clothing that was initially intended for use on the stage. And as this collection came together, they started to recognize how important these garments were. As we can imagine, or some viewers may, listeners rather, may know, clothing undergoes a lot of strain when you're wearing it on the stage. You're under bright lights. There's often theatrical makeup and a, a lot of wear and tear that the garments undergo. So it was decided that they should start to preserve and, and hold on to these objects and, and create a collection, which started to be an educational resource that was used for lectures and for other purposes. Um, around 1937, they came up with the idea to found the Museum of Costume Art, which was the genesis of the Costume Institute. And in the earliest years, they worked with the collection to organize shows somewhat itinerantly. Most of them were held in, in the Rockefeller Center and a series of, of rotating spaces. And around 1944, they began to campaign to bring the collection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is something that Dorothy Shaver vice president of, of and later president of Lord and Taylor and a really important player in the American fashion industry. Um, and Eleanor Lambert also became involved in. And in 1946, the Costume Institute came to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, it wasn't actually until 1959 that we were officially recognized as a curatorial department. But all of those women played really instrumental roles in establishing the collection, fundraising, advocating for fashion as an art form, and, and bringing the collection to the museum to today. Um, and we continue to be a unique department in, in the fact that we're independently funded and we're established always with the intention to preserve this important relationship with the fashion industry um, and provide access to not only scholars and, and researchers, but also designers and using our collection as this broader resource. So women like Pat Buckley and Anna Wintour have over the years served as museum trustees and taken on this important benefit known as the party of the year to, to fund our department in perpetuity. Yeah, we've actually done a history on the party of the year in the past on the show. So listeners, if you want to learn a little bit more about that, you can tune into that past episode. And what about um, the role of um, the women like yourselves who came together to mount this particular exhibition? That was especially fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew writes about this a little bit in his preface for the catalog, but the Costume Institute continues to have a, a largely female staff team. Currently, about 74% of our department, 
identifies as women. And we had the great pleasure of working with a variety of, of creative collaborators from within our own department, um, people like our installation manager, Joyce Fung, who's sort of the unsung hero of every show that we organize. Often, I think the less you think about her work, <laughs> the, the better of a job that she's done because she beautifully dresses all of our garments so flawlessly that you just imagine they always looked that way when you see them. People like Shelley Tarter, our collections manager who took point on the show, and Melina Plotu, a, a conservator who worked closely with Karen and I on the initial selection and, and treatment of objects for the catalog. For the book itself, we worked with Laura Genninger, an amazing designer and, and creative director, and an in-house photographer, Anna Marie Kellen, who worked really closely with us on the staging and did incredible things to, to bring the publication together with great resourcefulness and, and ingenuity and a lot of troubleshooting and, and interesting experimentation to get the mirrors to work and the various set changes that we include in the book. And then the exhibition team itself also included several women who played very critical roles. So Maru Perez was our exhibition designer. From the graphic side, we worked with a woman, Sarah Polarenti. Even our, our buildings point, Maria Nicolino is a woman, which is an area of the field that is very male-dominated, but she did an incredible job working with the construction team and the buildings team and all of the fabrication elements of the show. And yeah, it's something that was had a really wonderful energy around it and was exciting to work on in that sense. And I think that um, a lot of museum goers, again, you know, you brought up this topic of invisible labor, but a lot of museum goers don't really realize how many jobs and how big of a team that it takes to put on a massive, like very important exhibition such as this. So thank you to everyone for their work. So let's turn our attention to the show itself. The show itself exhibits garments from women makers from the 19 teens up until today, but the catalog itself actually sets us up for this even longer history. And uh, Jessica contributed a, a, one of the opening chapters that is um, entitled Artistry and Anonymity. And uh, she writes in that chapter that, quote, the right for women to create female fashions was not always assumed. Rather, as historian Jennifer Jones has described it, it was a hard won privilege. How so? And kind of what is the approximate time frame that we're talking about here? Yes, so we're talking about sort of the mid to late 17th century uh, when in France, of course, uh, women dressmakers were mostly working in anonymity, which is sort of the, the bigger idea also for the show and the catalog, the unknown dressmaker. Uh, but also they were not organized in guilds because only in France, guild members were only uh, could only be men. So in that sense, they didn't have any official structures or protection for their labor and weren't recognized. They, they were still sort of operating illegally and their only sort of available profession was to be a marchand de mode. So this was more like Rose Bertin, someone who would sell trimmings and decorations, but was not the actual tailor of the court uh, dress. But it's uh, under Louis XIV's uh, reign, it actually started to change. I mean, you have this minister of finance, Colbert, who starts to realize that the industry is very important to add to the glory of the nation. And then he wants to make fashion a more a bigger industry and uh, for the economy. And we see that women, also uh, female dressmakers, sort of play into that and really advocate for their rights. And in 1675, they are granted the right, not yet equal to the male tailors, but they already get more. There are more uh, garments that they can make, especially looser underdresses and blouses, uh, which also leads to, to sort of more relaxed fashions because they were created by women. But the, the biggest argument they make to be allowed to become uh, official women's dressmakers is that because they have to measure the female body and be very close uh, to them, they say it's a sort of question of modesty. And this actually uh, helps as an argument for women dressmakers to get the right to make these garments. And until, let's say, the French Revolution, it starts to sort of grow. And from uh, when the guild system is abolished uh, after the French Revolution, uh, women are allowed to do as much as male tailors. But of course, we see still the, the bird or the father uh, of haute couture with Charles Frederick Worth. But there is a growing, I mean, at the same time, there are women doing similar things, 
uh, but as Jessica writes, it, it's all still in anonymity. And I, I would say that's the biggest difference between them and Worth. Yeah, it came down to public recognition, really. Or maybe like more of like a level of international fame versus a level of local or, or regional fame <laughs> um, or popularity, I would say. So during the 18th and um, early 19th century, I'm hoping that one of you could tell us a little bit about the role of the dressmaker at this time. And I guess what I'm really trying to get at is the relationship between dressmakers and their female clients. Yes, there is certainly a sort of complicity or intimacy between the dressmaker and her female client. Uh, it's also described by uh, Liz Way in her uh, in another chapter in the catalog. She's about female dressmakers of color in America. It's sort of female lineage also between them, a way of working. This rapport between the dressmaker and her client is also already visible in a way in the story of Rose Bertin and um, Marie Antoinette. There is a certain, a real, I think, personal relationship and a, a sort of embodied or deeper knowledge of uh, the dressmaker and her, her client that you can see, yeah, that develops from the 18th into the 19th century and sort of gives Although women had been sort of set back because of the structures, uh, I think also gives them a sort of maybe an advantage uh, in the sense that they were literally physically also very close to their clients. Well, and these were sometimes very incredibly personal and intimate relationships in terms of a professional friendship and an ongoing working relationship for not only just decades, but also generations of women and also bringing their daughters to these same um, fellow women makers, which is, which is really fascinating. Yes, the intergenerational aspect is indeed something we also hope to mirror uh, in the exhibition in many different ways. Well, I told Melissa this. I loved, love, love your genealogy chart. Um, and I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit. But maybe we could talk about some of the very significant pieces that are in the exhibition from the first half of the 20th century and some of those designers behind them. I know this is probably an incredibly difficult curatorial choice for you all just to limit it to what you even had room for in the exhibition. But I'm wondering um, if maybe each of you would like to speak about a couple of your favorite early 20th century pieces. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Choosing what we could include in the show was by far the most challenging part of, of the exhibition. But one thing <laughs> that I think is really exciting about this exhibition is that it's a collection-based show, which is something that we aspire to do with with all of our fall shows. And we use the collection as a really helpful guiding rubric. It was a way of sort of limiting the scope of a topic that could be so vast. And um, as you know, I think we could have curated a half a dozen shows easily and still felt that we hadn't included every, every women designer that merited inclusion. Yeah. So yeah, we had to make some really tough decisions. In terms of the first half of the 20th century, some of my piece, my favorite pieces include the Jean Halet Ensemble, which is exciting because it's the, the first example of pants that we include in, in the collection for women. It's a, it's a jupe culotte ensemble, and it was created around 1910, 1911. And Jean Halet is it's a really interesting design house which there haven't been a lot published on, actually. And we're really excited to have just published a an essay for the timeline of art history, which FIT conservator Kelly O'Connor just authored. Um, she had actually done her undergraduate and graduate thesis work on Jean Halet. So it was exciting oh, nice. to be able to tap her to share some of her research. And the Costume Institute has one of the, the largest publicly shared collections of Jean Halet garments that I've come across in, in my research. So that's exciting. And I think it speaks to sort of the treasures and the depth of our archives. But it's a really interesting house because it shows sort of the opportunity that, that existed for female entrepreneurship outside of just the the beauty and sort of compelling design of, of the ensemble itself, which has exquisite embroidery on it and is in, in wonderful condition and um, is such an exciting piece to have on view. The house was originally established in the 19th century as a lingerie purveyor, and it was eventually bought by two former staff members. One of them is Marie Angenard, who took over as sort of the lead designer and turned the establishment into a couture business. 
Another piece that I'm especially excited about that's included in in the Apfel Gallery, which focuses on the sort of hegemony of, of French haute couture during the early 20th century, which is a bias that's certainly reflected in our permanent collection and in so much of fashion periodicals and, and reporting during the time period, is the Cyclone Gown by the House of Lanvin. The dress was designed by, by Jean Lanvin, and it has really interesting provenance because it had been worn by her daughter, the Comtesse Marie Blanche de Polignac. And anyone who's familiar with the history of Lanvin will know that the design house mythology very much centers around this important relationship between mother and daughter. And in fact, the Lanvin logo was um, taken after an, an image of uh, Jean Lanvin and, and her daughter when she was young dancing while they're wearing fancy dress at a ball. So that heritage and, and mythology is really important to the house. Lanvin had began her career in, in the late 19th century as a milliner, and she branched out in, into fashion initially by designing clothing for her young daughter. And by 1909, she had become established as a couturier. And a lot of the Cliff Notes version of the history of Blanvin always ascribes her her work and her success to this motherly love for her daughter, which I think is so important. But I also think it's really critical to recognize and identify Blanvin for her entrepreneurship and her dedication to her craft. And I like to think that, of course, she had this incredible love for her daughter, but I think that in addition to that, she ingeniously found ways to like really deeply intertwine her personal and, and professional life and bring her daughter into the business and find ways to stay dedicated to fashion and, and make it work. And Lanvin is one of the, it's in fact the, the oldest couture house that was in continuous operation. And still they stopped creating couture in, in the 90s. They thrived through both world wars. In addition to creating millinery and, and children's wear, she branched out into menswear. She had created outerwear and fur. She had perfume. She had her own dye factories. And I think that scope of her business and, and her ability to represent not only the Lanvin brand, but also French fashion on the global stage was just so important. And she created this incredibly stable and flourishing business that employed many of her siblings and extended family too. So it's a really incredible success story. And I think though a lot of people are familiar with the Lanvin brand today, many people don't know about the founder herself. So we're excited to be able to highlight her um, in this moment. And the dress itself also came to the collection as part of a really important gift of, of French haute couture, which had been assembled by three women. And it joined the museum in, in 1946, the year that the Costume Institute, the department. And it was originally organized by uh, three women, Mrs. Harrison Williams or Mona von Bismarck, Fernanda Wanamaker de Harine Munn, otherwise known as Mrs. Ector Munn, and the very well-known Elsie de Bull for Lady Mendel, who was an important interior designer as well. And they had originally assembled this collection of dresses and gowns that were worn during important occasions just on the precipice of, of World War II in, in France and used it as part of their fundraising for a organization called Le Collier de Trianon Versailles, which assembled boxes to send to soldiers um, on the front lines of war in France. They organized several rotating exhibitions with the collection to fundraise and, and support French fashion during a difficult time during war. So afterwards, they um, followed up with some of the participants and were able to assemble a small cache of dresses, which um, came to the Costume Institute in 1946. So it's a really exciting piece to have in our permanent collection. Oh, that's so exciting. I also like on that on that little note that you made about mother-daughter relationship that's embedded into the Lanvin mythology. I, I've always thought that they were so good at developing their patrimony in the moment while it was happening. That was obviously so obvious in their actual branding at the time that that was that was so important to them. So You know that there were many archival materials that had been left up in the, the storerooms in the, the attics of the Lanvin buildings, which were discovered after a period of dormancy for like over 40 years. So they have some incredible archives that even the more contemporary iterations of the house have come across in more recent years. So, But I think that Jean Lanvin herself, to your point, was very organized. I mean, if you look at images of her office and her library, she was just so dedicated and passionate to what she was doing. It was very much so archiving and collecting and always thinking about the future and, and the heritage of the brand, for sure. Yep. And for any of you who are um, 
planning to visit Paris anytime soon, you can actually stop by the Musée des Arts Décoratifs and see some of um, the interiors of Lanvin's home. It's kind of like one of her little sitting areas and also the most fabulous bathroom from the 1930s that you've ever seen. There just might be some leopard in there, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Karen, what about you? Do you have any favorites from this early 20th century time period that are featured in the exhibition? It's a a tough choice, but there is a very beautiful black evening gown by Madame Grey. Madame Grey is also one of the opening silhouettes at the entry to the show because she's one of two female designers who's had personal retrospective at the Costume Institute. This dress is a black evening dress with a sort of uh, twisted draped volume uh, on at the front. It's very sculptural, and for me, as a you know more maybe contemporary fashion person, it's a sort of proto you know commonly garçon body meets dress creation, and just attests because it's from thirty six. I think you know Madame Grace had a very long and fruitful career he just attests of her yeah her singular uh, genius vision that for me bridges different time zones and and spaces and in that room um in the iris apple gallery these particular pieces are behind glass and you know on one hand it's harder for, to take photos of them when you're attending on the other hand what that did is it lets us get up close to some of these pieces in a way that we don't usually have the opportunity to within an exhibition. And that Madame Gray, you know, seeing it so close and seeing all those little pleats and all those little tucks. My friend who was with me was like, where does all the fabric go? And I'm like, exactly. That's the genius of it. Um, Just some of those other dresses in that whole section, the teeny tiniest little most perfect stitches and that is just the testament to to all the seamstresses that were working in these couture houses as well so i loved being able to get that physically close to those garments within that section Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In America, women designers are really going to explode onto the scene with fame to rival their French counterparts, kind of starting a little bit in the 1920s, but it really ramped up into the 1940s. So who were some of the influential women designers in the States at this time? And could you tell us a little bit about what they were known for? Yeah, absolutely. So we were very happy to include several women designers in in the exhibition. One of them that I'm especially excited about is is Jessie Franklin Turner, who was one of the earliest American designers working in the custom salon model. She established her business during the, the 1920s and for many years, she had worked as a retail buyer for Bon Teller. She had traveled and oversaw the European and, and Asian markets. So she had a really incredible and, and rich appreciation and 
understanding of global dress. She had cultivated really important relationships with museum curators and was sort of at the forefront of engaging with museum collections and historical fashion as well and using it as a resource. And she also interestingly served on the first board of directors for the Museum of Costume Art, which is another sort of nice touchstone with our history. We include a tea gown by Jesse Franklin Turner in, in the exhibition, which is something that she was especially known for, these ravishing, incredible tea gowns worn indoors that really showcased her aptitude as a colorist and often incorporated details from global dress, looking at garments like the kimono for sort of more fluid and, and loose cuts and bringing a, a sort of simplicity to design that was anchored in contemporaneity. We also have women, you mentioned the, the 1940s, who really came to the fore then, such as, as Vera Maxwell. We have a really incredible coverall that she designed in, in 1945, which is after a model that she created for the women factory workers that entered the workforce during World War II, which is after the Sperry gyroscope factory workers. And I've been thinking about those coveralls a lot and hearing from a lot of colleagues and Friends. I think especially during the pandemic, we saw this resurgence with the jumpsuit and, and so many women have said this feels so contemporary and, and so of the moment still. Maxwell herself had be, entered her career as ballet dancer and, and model in her youth. And I think that need for freedom was something that was so important to her design work and this idea of movement and also lending speed and, and easiness to women's wardrobes is something that she was especially known for. One of her important inventions was a dress which was called the speed suit. And the conceit behind it was that it took 17 seconds to get dressed. There were no hooks or buttons or ties or, or zippers to contend with. It just had a stretch and really you know, <laughs> empowered women to go about leading their very rich and, and busy lives. We include designers like Tina Leeser, who I know you spent some time researching yourself, April. <laughs> I did. I wrote my master's thesis on her. <laughs> I was so excited to see her in the in the um, exhibition. That was great. Oh, that's great. What did you think of the the piece that was in the show? I knew it. I knew that piece already. And I was wondering, I, I think I had heard through the rumor mill that there was going to be a Tina Leeser piece in the show, but I wasn't sure exactly which one. But I loved that one because it's so indicative of her work because she she grew up all over the world. She had a very kind of unusual childhood. Her family was quite well-to-do, but her mom was super avant-garde spiritualist. So she was always following some sort of guru like all over the world to study under them. So Tina grew up traveling in the 19-teens and the 1920s to all these amazing places. And that's where she fell in love with textiles from all these different regions of the world. And that is something that she not only pulled into her own work, but she also pulled into the mainstream American fashion market of working with different textile manufacturers. And then also she was one of the first people to start using um, Jim Thompson's tie silks in the American fashion industry as well. So that ensemble, which is um, like kind of a little East Asian inspired blouse and also a paired with some, some pleated trousers, um, it is kind of that very specific quote unquote exotic reference, but within this American lexicon of American sportswear. I love that piece too. And it does, the textile is drawing on global references and in fact was inspired by a past Costume Institute show, an early one. So again, it's like a lovely sort of connection back to our own departmental history. And it's another jumpsuit underneath that little bolero that buttons up. So Oh, I didn't realize it was a jumpsuit. That makes it even better in my world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was a very difficult decision to decide whether to show the little sweetheart neckline that it has or to um, button up the jacket, but it looked so elegant buttoned. So we had to make that difficult decision. But yeah, and then of course, we also have designers like Pauline Treger, who was a French designer who had trained in France and initially worked for Marcel and Armand and then came to the States. Her parents were a dressmaker and tailor. And that varied methodological background is something that really comes out in her work. And we have an incredible skirt suit, which is, draws from the tuxedo, which I think is a fabulous piece. And, and so many people have talked about also like how much they loved and treasured their treasure designs, which were always so beautifully tailored and timeless and the type of garments that people would just invest in and, and hold on to. And of course, it, it wouldn't be, the show wouldn't be complete if we didn't include the work of, of Bonnie Cashin, an American designer who 
was very independent and really known for dressing women from from head to toe. She was one of the first to create her own independent design studio, and she worked with a variety of manufacturers across discipline. We're very excited to have an incredible poncho in the show that had actually belonged to the artist Louise Nevelson, which has never been shown before in our history. Um, so that's a, a highlight for us. And then our cover girl for the, the exhibition, Claire McCardle, who listeners may have seen the image of her, which we used to promote the show, where she's using her future dress, which is a piece in our permanent collection that we're excited to have on view in, in the exhibition as well. I have seen that photograph for years now. I had no idea that that dress is like this really rich, beautiful kind of copper color. I don't know why, because the photograph is black and white. I just, in my imagination, thought that it might be denim, um, which is something that Claire liked to use quite frequently. But I was rather surprised to see that it's like this really, really nice kind of deep copper brown. It's it's lovely. Absolutely. And it has that signature McCardle top stitching, which you find in denim so frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Karen, I know that the late 20th century is your area of specialty. So um, I'm hoping we can talk about London a little bit as another fashion capital, because that is really in the 1960s when London solidifies itself um, as a major fashion capital in terms of ready to wear. So what was happening in terms of boutique culture there in the 1960s? And you wrote about this specifically in the exhibition catalog. You talked a little bit about agency and identity. How does that play into the work of British women designers who were breaking new ground in London at that time? So going from the early ideas of uh, anonymity, going to the feasibility of uh, the interwar designers and the Americans. Then we go indeed into this agency section where women become more, uh, I mean, have more both in their artistic endeavors and also economically, you know, have more rights. And it's, all, of course, also at the same time of, of the larger changes in society, the feminist movement, but also, of course, the youth culture, um, youth quake happening mostly ever especially in London. And we see that uh, people like, of course, also Mary Quant and Barbara Hulaniki start to what we call the, the boutique generation. So start to really create spaces, uh, what I call in my catalog essays, the room of one's own from Virginia Woolf, but then for fashion designers, instead of, you know, selling, I mean, like the mid-century designers in department stores, they, they start to create their own spaces where they can really meet their, their own customer in a sort of, even though it's ready to wear, because that's an Another big movement that's happening, uh, the move from haute couture to ready to wear. So it's no longer custom made. The designer is no longer, you know, maybe in that very intimate relationship taking the measurements. But in, instead, there is this agency and sort of two-way communication between uh, the designer and the customer. We also see that in America with the boutiques of uh, Norma Kamali, for example, and Betsy Johnson in New York. There is a real, I would say, mutual understanding. And this sort of continues into the 70s with designers also that start to be more, let's say, politically engaged people like Vivian Westwood in London. But what's really happening, I think, in London is is this meeting of different youth cultures. So you have fashion and uh, music culture thing. And then the, the boutique, I think, is really, in that sense, a, an empowering place where both the designer and the customer have agency. And again, this sort of intimate relationship and where the, the designers like Barbara Hulaniki also start to expand uh, not just her sell clothing, but complete uh, lifestyle. Viva becomes a whole emporium, as you know. It becomes a real uh, thriving industry and, and a place for women to really create their own thing and not for another label, you know, under a label or under another brand. Yeah, I think boutique culture is very important in, in that sort of historical continuation of the relationship between uh, women designers and their customers in different ways and in different cities. And a lot of these women designers, again, are reinventing the business model of fashion as well. I mean, Barbara was re really one of those people that I, I don't want to say the bad aspects of fast fashion is, is what she brought into the scene. What I'm saying is like it was about creating in real time and selling in real time like to her customers who many times were her exact same age. So she was really to, able to connect with them on a quicker business model. 
Yes, the customers were being listened to by the designer rather than the industry is changing, but there is also a sort of breaking free from imposed rules. And I think that uh, in that sense, the reactions or the quicker reactions to customers' wants and needs is also something Norm, uh, Norma Kamali talks about. Uh, I think is because there is a, a, a shorter uh, connection between designer and customer. I love the fact that you just brought up rule breaking because uh, more than a few of the works in the exhibition are truly groundbreaking. You, of course, include um, a 3D printed dress by Iris van Herpen. But one of the pieces that I found as a fashion historian who has been doing this for a very long time, I love it when I get surprised and get excited and get to go to these exhibitions and learn something truly new, was the piece by Georgia Godley. Could you tell us about her work um, and specifically about the relationship as you mounted Godley's work next to Ray Kawakubo's piece for Come to Garçon? I was not familiar with Godley's work, so I'm I'm intrigued. Tell me more. (laughs) He's one of the great designers that's been maybe uh, lesser known or or left in in some of the folds of fashion history. But so in the 80s, she was sort of part of that yeah, of that new, I mean, I know her because I, before I worked in Belgium also on at the Fashion Museum here in Antwerp on the history of the Antwerp Six. And they often mentioned her as a reference because they would travel to London and see her work. And she was really in the mid 80s, the height of that sort of new wave of London designers. And she was together with her then partner, Scott Crolla, who might be a bit more known, who had a menswear line that they co designed that was an more sort of peacock uh, menswear but so at the same time and she started to work at Liberties in London where she would create like very artistic uh, window displays as many other (laughs) designers have sort of like an origin story of I think several artists and designers but so she was really working on the body of the mannequins for those window displays and then in her own line started to also really experiment in a sort of sculptural way body shapes and especially with these appendages uh, that we all know very well from uh, the body meets dress from um, Rei Kawakubo in the mid 90s. But so this was almost seven or eight years before. But what she said about that collection, uh, it was called Lumps and Bumps, actually. And she said that her motivation came really from she was looking for a sort of third way in the 80s. Because you had either the sort of hard, sort of masculine uh, physiques of the 80s that was at the time the feminist ideal was to have a sort of hard body. And she said as a feminist, you then had the other choice of the Japanese or the more uh, shapeless garments. And she wanted to create another alternative or a third way uh, for women called yourself a feminist to to uh, sort of find a way that did not undo femininity or what we describe as feminine features. She worked from a Barbie doll and then extrapolated those features and then made these extreme curvy dresses, mostly in uh, Jersey and Lycra. She would really give the wearer also the, the freedom to place the volume on the back or on the front. And she was also referring to uh, older myths of uh, fertility dolls from different civilizations, which you can also see uh, at the Met Museum. But in that sense, I think uh, we weren't, we put them together because they are just very, uh, Rei Kawakuo had her own ideas when she was creating her collection. So I think they each had their own yeah, message with, with what they created and also with giving uh, women that sort of creative freedom to play with different volumes on the body. Mm-hmm. Well, it also just comes again to that that point that a lot of times fashion designers are tar- tapping into this bigger, broader cultural zeitgeist of the moment. So sometimes they're picking up on similar ideas and maybe they're coming to something similar, but they're coming at it from different aspects. It's never necessarily like a direct copying situation. It's just like about what's happening in this moment and where are their brains, you know, turning to. So I think this is a really wonderful example of that. And I was really, I was super excited to learn about Godley's work. So, okay. On the subject of bodies, changing bodies is definitely part of all women's experiences, um, as are also unique needs of differently abled bodies featured in your exhibition. Could you tell us um, about some of the garments in the show, which 
especially root their design ethos in the embodied experience because there's several. Yeah, when Karen and I were were organizing the exhibition, one of the things that was really important to us from the outset was ensuring that we didn't present women as this monolith. And that goes for the designers and their approach to fashion and their working methodologies and inspirations, but also the wearer too, and their individual distinctive needs. So we were excited to use this as an opportunity to include a variety of different mannequins and and body types and sort of recognize that variety, which is a a very genuine part of life that isn't always addressed within high fashion, although I do think that's changing more and more. I think one of my favorite sort of early examples is is a juxtaposition that we have in the show where we have a Fortuny Delphos gown, which is paired with a piece by the contemporary Belgian design house Estramonos. Both pieces are um, sizeless garments, which are made to conform to the body itself rather than require the body to support or adjust to properly display the garment. Um, So that's a really interesting and exciting aspect of of those two pieces to me. And I also love the way that Estramanas works. They're deeply engaged in ethical production practices and, um, in fact, produce in part with an organization in Belgium called Atelier Mulieris, which translates to um, Of the Woman or Atelier of the Women, which is a reintegration program, a vocational reintegration program that provides employment and and training to women working in fashion. Um, So that's sort of two examples of very early and sort of late fashions that can sort of stretch and support the body. One of the more exciting recent acquisitions to the collection of the Costume Institute, which we're excited to feature in this show, is an ensemble that was designed by Hilary Tamor of, of Kalina Strada. And Tamor is also a very ethically oriented designer. She's very um, engaged with ideas related to sustainability. She's also an incredibly joyful and exuberant and and expressive designer and often when you when you look back at fashion history you hear designers talk a lot about who their ideal customer is or who their woman is and one of the things that I've always loved about Hillary's work is that if you look at her runway shows she has such a diverse range of models of all ages and sizes and races and abilities and it really feels like her work is for everyone so the piece that we include in the show is this incredible mesh lace bodysuit, which has been digitally printed with this wild print that is on this dead stock lace. And it came to us with these matching sneakers, which are covered with these lace cozies with self-fabric laces. And there's also a component that is a, a jeweled chain, which was actually worn by the model on the runway, Aaron Rose Phillip, who is a, a Black transgender model who has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair which definitely does not prevent her from totally dominating the runway and traveling the world to do so many things. And she has just so much joy and energy that she herself brings to fashion. So when the piece first came into our collection, we photographed it for the book and we wanted to include the sneakers. So we used a seated mannequin, but it felt, you know, it's always tricky when you're working with mannequins. They can't nearly compare to the body and the animation and personality that that a model can bring to fashion for better or worse and one component that I was really sad to leave out is this incredible jeweled chain that Hillary had made that Aaron wore on the runway. So I was talking to Andrew about it, and essentially he's like, why don't you create a custom mannequin? So we had the great pleasure, myself and our installation manager, Joyce Fung, and I traveled to Nice this past summer with Aaron and her manager and her father, and she modeled for a custom mannequin, which we display the ensemble in. And that allows us to not only include the full ensemble, but to display every single component, including the wheelchair chain, which I think is really exciting because especially, you know, when it comes to accessible fashion and, you know, I should highlight this isn't strictly adaptive fashion per se, but Hillary works really closely with all of her models and she's very cognizant of their different needs and the experience of, of dressing her models for the runway. So that really informs a lot of her work. But You know, often adaptive fashion is made to camouflage or to make people blend in. But I love the expressive, exuberant spirit that this ensemble was created within. And I think that if you do want to stand out there, you should have the opportunity to do so. Um, So I love the choice that she introduces through that really amazing ensemble. 
I mean, it is a very like, hey, look at me outfit. Absolutely. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> I think it's, for me, it's really the inclusion of the matching sneakers that like really tips it over the edge. The sneakers are just incredible. <laughs> there are more than 70 garments or ensembles featured in the exhibition. You know, because there are so many, it's impossible for us to talk about all of them in the course of the episode. But I'm wondering if you might have a particular piece or pieces that we haven't discussed yet that you think that we should highlight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of one of my favorites in the show is an incredible dress, which is layered navy and aqua silk chiffon that was created by the design house of Mad Carpentier. And this is actually one of many objects that are featured in the exhibition, which have actually never been shown before publicly. When we were tallying up the numbers for the exhibition, we were actually quite surprised to realize that about exactly 50% of objects on view in the, in the exhibition have never been shown before. And this is one of them. And Mad Carpentier is a really fascinating design house. It's one of several uh, French couture houses that were birthed with the closure of Madeleine Viennet's couture house in, in the early 20th century um, on the precipice of, of World War II. And it's a really fascinating example of the way that women drew upon their experience working in haute couture in the early 20th 20th century and used that experience and their training to venture out on their own and start businesses. And so Mad Carpentier was created by two women, Madeline Mad Maltesos, who was the, the head designer for the house and had formerly been a premier d'atelier at VNA, and Susie Carpentier, who was a Vendus at VNA. And the two of them teamed up and, and worked together on design, drawing upon Carpentier's knowledge of her clientele's needs and Maltesos' incredible technical skill. So this dress is, is just one example from that house. And, and it's a house that's not very frequently focused on in, in fashion history exhibitions. So it's a great example of the breadth of the Costume Institute archives and how much there is to discover that that hasn't been widely shared within our amazing collection of, of 33,000 objects. And I also think it's a great example of the interconnection between design houses that was happening in the early 20th century and just the proliferation of businesses that were emerging and all of the movements and mergers that occur during this period of, of incredible activity. So it's a really exciting piece for me that a lot of visitors have really responded to and been excited to learn about. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have already chatted about this in person, but I, absolutely, hands down, one of my absolute favorite moments of seeing the exhibition for the first time was kind of like rounding this corner. And there's this video projection that's on the wall that is this massive family tree of sorts of how all of these women designers throughout history are interconnected. And it's fascinating for, for somebody who's a, a fashion historian like me to see it all visually laid out. And there's also a, a replication of this um, in print in the exhibition catalog. Can we talk about that a little bit further? This is supremely special. So much research must have gone into this. Yeah, the, the genealogy was one of the most rewarding things to work on and also one of the scariest, perhaps. <laughs> we were building upon the work of so many researchers over the years, and it's really fascinating when you look at archives and what's been published over time, how much more information is constantly becoming accessible to us as researchers, and also how rapidly information is changing. So even some of the designers that are more contemporary that are featured in, in the book, between the time of publication, they had already moved on to other houses or there had been changes in the fashion industry. So it's a really living document in many ways. But Karen and I started with the genealogy when we were working on the show and collecting these designer histories and sort of mapping out these connections became one of the early ways that we were able to organize our research. And again, Matt Carpentier is a really great example of that because through looking at Calosor, where Madeline Vianney trained, and we know that was a really formative experience for her, and then looking at the House of Vianney and the other offshoots that came from Vianney, like Matt Carpentier, like Marcel Chaumont, um, even houses led by men like uh, Jacques Brief, all benefit from that mentorship and training and um, experience working at the House of VNA. So it was a really rewarding thing to put together. And looking at it visually was also really fascinating because you can really 
sort of start to see moments where there was a real density of, of women designers and geographically where there was more opportunity for women. And of course, all of this is filtered through the lens of our permanent collection, which was a really essential rubric and way of sort of defining the scope of the show for us. But I do think that our collection in many ways is is fairly reflective of which designers were being published and studied and and worn and, and patronized the most throughout history. So yeah, it was a really incredible thing to work on. And I have to say our graphic designer and our digital team did an incredible job of translating that information for our visitors and making it really, I, I think, very compelling and sort of mesmerizing. It's, it's amazing to see how much activity there is, particularly in the early 20th century in, in France. Yeah. I, I think I stood there and watched it three times over and over and over. <laughs> and then I was so happy that there's actually a, a replication of it in the catalog. So we, as researchers, can return to that information. And add to it. Yes, and add to it. That's why it's there. We all stand on each other's shoulders. Absolutely. Ladies, thank you so much for this beautiful exhibition um, on the history of women dressing women. Again, mounted at this very poignant moment in time where the role of women designers in the history and future of fashion is a current topic of discussion within the industry. And I'm sure that we are going to see lots more incredible designs by female designers featured in your upcoming exhibition in May, which we are very much looking forward to seeing Sleeping Beauties. Um, And also, I just want to say congratulations on the soon-to-be expansion of the Costume Institute galleries to the first floor off the main hall. This is very exciting to all of us. So again, thank you so much for being here and we look forward to what you have in store for us next. Thank you, April. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Melissa, Karen, thank you so much for joining us. April, you and I both were pretty awestruck when we saw at the show that designer family tree that you and Melissa spoke about. I mean, what an incredible visualization of how all of these designers were interconnected and how mentorship played such an important role in fashion history. And I cannot say enough wonderful things about this exhibition. I mean, there were so many iconic designers and iconic pieces on view, April. I don't know if you have a favorite... I really enjoyed, of course, I'm a huge fan of the early 20th century. I loved seeing like the Jean Halet, the Viennese, the Lan Van, that Bouet Sirs robe de steel that everyone posts. <laughs> it was so cool to see it in person. Oh, I love the Bouet Sirs as well. I mean, it is like this a marvelous feat of ribbon work. <laughs> it's so, so, so beautiful. Um, and as our regular listeners will know, I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Hawes. And there's a couple of Elizabeth Hawes pieces in there. One of uh, her very famous dresses, which is called Sticks, is on view. It's an evening gown. But lesser known actually is a pair of overalls that's in the exhibition. And there's a like one of the very few really amazing photos that we have of Lizzie um, is she's wearing pants and she's kind of reclining in this Corbusier chair and it's those overalls that she's wearing in that photo so I was like oh my god that's that's them that's them I don't know I I, there were very specific moments when I fashion history (laughs) geeked out during this exhibition yeah both of us actually we made Haley take some photographs of us as we looked at awe at all of these pieces because it was just it's it was so incredible to see all of these women designers brought together in conversation with one another over for 100 plus years. So such a fantastic exhibition dress listeners, you're just going to have to go check the show out for yourself. But if you cannot make it in person, the show's going to be up until March 10th, 2024. But if you can't make it in person, we highly recommend picking up a copy of the exhibition catalog, which we have, of course, put on our dressed bookshelf. And you can find that at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dress. And we always place a link to that in our show notes as well. Yes. And I just want to say that we are not quite yet done investigating the women at the center of this show. Um, The day that we happened to conduct this interview, all three of us were on very strict schedules. So we had like an hour to conduct this conversation, but we actually had a lot more to talk about. And that is why on Thursday, Melissa is going to join us again to give us a little bit of a behind the scenes peek into the exhibition itself. I just have to say there is so much unseen labor that goes into mounting fashion exhibitions. It's it's purposeful 
hopefully made to be that way, right? You know, it looks effortless. Um, but what we're going to do on Thursday is we're going to shine a little bit of a light on some of the curatorial decisions and also the individual women responsible for creating the exhibition. So tune into that on Thursday. But until then, dress listeners, that does it for us this week. May you consider all of the women who fashioned the clothes you are wearing at this very moment. Next time you get dressed. Listeners, Dress the School of Fashion is open. And my course, What Women Wore to the Revolution, is currently in session. And part one of April's Great Designer Series is now open for registration. And that is coming your way in April of this year. And you can learn more about this and sign up at dressedhistory.com. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore history, which is where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to find the Instagram content related to this week's episodes, you can search the hashtag dressed 343. That's dressed 343. Thanks for tuning in and more dressed and more women dressing women coming your way on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media.